Hi, I'm Steve Sensenig. And I'm Rayburn Johnson. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. Beyond the Box is a community of people who are learning how to live beyond the limitations of institutional religion. We are searching out a message that is truly good news for everyone. Through discussions, interviews, group casts, and online interactions, we endeavor to foster a safe place to discuss our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we are not afraid of any question. So, grab a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join in the community that is Beyond the Box. Ray, my man, welcome to Beyond the Box. It is Steve Sensenig, I would say in the flesh, but it's actually <laughs> Not on audio in my ears. Hello, Steve Sensenig. <laughs> hello, hello Steve's Johnson. voice. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so good to talk to you, bro. We've already been on the phone for I don't know how many hours, probably. 49 but, uh, minutes and 47 seconds. I've got the timer. <laughs> yeah, but, but who's, who's counting? Yeah. I'm on, I'm on uh, Skype, so you know you got the little, the little timer going on. You got the little on. counter there, yeah. No, it's it's great to catch up with you, and uh, it's been a long time since we dropped a podcast episode. Uh, we we missed our seventh anniversary too. We did. Happy anniversary, by the way. Seven years. Uh, I think yeah. a lot of people are probably going. It feels like seven years since you did the last podcast. Since the last episode, but, I know. <laughs> but it's not been. It's it's only been about well. Let's see, let's say we posted one back in March, but it has been a while since you and I did one together, and. We it keep been, talking yeah. about it, and we definitely have yep. plans to do it. But it's just been such a, it it's been such a hard thing to get the two of us together between our schedules. But yeah. we we're staying constant communication. I think I message you mm-hmm. we probably message every other day at least. Oh, um, at least yeah, we're in frequent communication with each other. Yeah. Uh, so the conversation's still going on. We just haven't been doing it in front of microphones. Yeah, exactly. That's been the hard part. <laughs> but there's lots time of to conversation. Yeah, and and related to that, Ray, we're kind of excited because uh, after seven years, we're going to sort of uh, take ourselves back to the roots of Beyond the Box. Um, when you and I do start podcasting together again on a regular basis, uh, we're going to be going back to two guys thinking out loud about life outside of institutional religion. I've told several people that we're going in a new parentheses old direction. Yes. <laughs> You it know, feels like new, we, doesn't it? <laughs> we want to go. It's like we. It feels like a new direction in some ways, but it's really the yeah. original direction that we went in. That we feel like not only connected us with so many people um, mm-hmm. that that we have been so excited to be connected with for so many years, but also that just gave us a form because I think we've realized you yeah. and I that um, at the end of the day, this conversation started as two guys thinking out loud. And mm-hmm. we've missed that for, for a long time. We don't get to do it as often. Yeah. And we've, um, we've had so many interviews and so many people on the podcast, which has been fantastic. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's kind of caused our conversations to take a, a back seat and to be on the back burner. That's a good way to put it. And yeah. so we're going to bring that back to the front burner and, uh, yep. and begin to do two guys thinking out loud again. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to get back on that because... 
those conversations, every time I've ever done that with you, we always go away from it feeling empowered, inspired, you know, heard, all that kind of thing. So. And that, and that has resonated with a lot of people over the seven years that we've been doing this. It's been been really neat to to uh, build friendships with people that have been listening to us. And um, I, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, like you said, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the interviews. And, and we don't mean to belittle any of the guests that we've had on the podcast. Um, but it, there is something about just the two of us talking that I think brings it a little bit more down to earth for some people. Yeah. And uh, helps a lot of uh, quote unquote ordinary people realize that they have a voice too. Exactly. And uh, that's one of the things that I think really um, has driven our conversations over the last uh, more than seven years. Cause we've been friends for a lot longer than that, but uh, definitely in the podcast uh, Avenue, what has driven our conversations has been just you and I giving each other a voice exactly. and giving each other permission to talk and to think out loud and to, um, bounce ideas off of each other, even though sometimes they feel really crazy and far out there. Um, well, and, I, and that, I, that whole thinking out, out loud thing, I think just drives a, an interesting dynamic, um, among people like us. And, and I think, yeah, I think a big part of it too is, you know, the interviews have been wonderful and they've, you know, that we've, we've gotten, we've gotten so much good feedback on those and I've gained so much from those. But one thing that I have missed is the conversational style that we have had in the podcast and the spontaneous conversational style, because, you know, when I, when I've done an interview in the past, I always feel, I always feel incumbent upon me that I need to prepare as much as possible to uh, Mm -hmm. give whoever the guest is to give, give them a chance to share as much as we can share within an hour or two hours, whatever the time frame is for that podcast. And so, right. you know, I prepare a lot of questions ahead of time. I read a lot of books ahead mm-hmm. of time, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you and I hook up microphones, it's completely spontaneous. It's completely unscripted yeah. and it really is just dialogue. And I feel like that has, that has two different effects. The first effect being that, you know, it, it's something for us where we can, we can feel like, okay, we can just think out loud. We can talk and just see where things go. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, I think it's it's also in some ways modeling for other people that it's okay to do that, that you don't yes, have to have exactly. an agenda, that you don't have to be theologically trained, that you don't have to have right. all of your ducks in a row, that it's okay right. just to express what's in your heart, to say it out loud, to let other people yeah. hear it and to see where it takes you. You know, for far too many centuries, really, Ray, uh, the the voice of the everyman in in religion, uh, and specifically Christianity that you and I have come through, um, that voice has been really marginalized and silenced in a lot mm-hmm. of situations. And um, you know, you and I, you and I, at one point, both were professional clergy, um, but and a lot of people know our stories. Uh, but I think once we left that and realized that we didn't fit into that particular mold anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and suddenly those people didn't really want to talk to us anymore, um, realizing that, that we still had a voice was, was really huge, I think, in our development and in our journey. And, and I know when you and I first started getting together for breakfast uh, years ago, I, that, I know that was a big part of it for me. I would come away going, wow, he actually listened to what I had to say. Mm. He actually gave it thought. He, he, you know, received what I was saying in a way that showed respect to me and made me feel valuable. And 
you know, affirmation isn't always a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not always unhealthy to be affirmed. And I think, unfortunately, in religion, we do a whole lot of disservice to people by not affirming their voice and not letting them speak up. Um, and, you know, so it's it's one thing to, to listen to a professional uh, speak about something, but it's another thing to, to just listen to what other people around us are saying. And there's a lot of wisdom around us, right? Yeah. And I, and like I say, I think there's, I think we gain so much wisdom by it. I think there's something, you know, I personally believe that, you know, kind of like Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, that he's there. Mm -hmm. And so when you and I begin talking, I mean, there's just been so many situations where I can just feel the spirit in the midst, guiding the conversation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you say things you didn't plan on saying, I say things I didn't plan on saying. And it even goes beyond that. It's not just that we didn't plan on saying it. It's there's times I didn't even know it. Before exactly. I said it, it comes yeah. out of my heart. Yeah. It comes out of your heart. And, and, yeah. uh, it's just something where honestly, if we never, you know, we do this anyway, whether we turn on the mics or not, but exactly. I know. so, <laughs> so at the end of the day, whether we turn on the mics or not, this would happen. But <laughs> I just love the fact that we do turn on the mics and that the people out yeah. there who don't have a conversation partner, you know, just as the, the whole reason we started this thing is we said, let's let other people listen in on this conversation. People who mm-hmm. are in an area where maybe they don't have someone that they're on the same page with or that they feel safe to dialogue with. And, and let's right. just let them, you know, sit in the conversation as a silent partner and then interact, yeah. interact with us online as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually just been it's been a great journey. And I feel like in some ways, you know, we've gotten away from that aspect of it just not not in a not in a bad way not in a right. way that we regret but just you no, know no. now we're not just ready to kind of to go back doing that um yeah and i'm excited That's a good about way to it. Put it i can't wait till you've you've got a lot going on your plate right now and uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. and the two of us the two of us have just had a hard time hooking up but we definitely want yeah. to continue down that new old uh, uh, what is it? The <laughs> back, right. back to the future, uh, beyond the box <laughs> version. Um, we'll call yeah. it 1.0 a or something. There you go. That's right. We're going to downgrade again. We're going to downgrade, um, but it's going to be the a version. But I'll tell you one of the things that, that I have seen, uh, Ray over the past few years as, uh, especially you've been obviously the more prolific, prolific interviewer than I have. I, I think I did two interviews. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you've definitely taken the bull by the horns on that. Uh, you know, there is, uh, I have seen in you, brother, just a real um, skill for getting the questions asked that need to be asked um, and and really driving at answers with people that you interview. You know, there are some great interviewers in media uh, today, and I think um, certainly like in public radio, there's Terry Gross and there's Krista Tippett. Um Ray, you are, you're right up there with those guys and uh, gals. <laughs> and um, I, I'm really excited about having discovered that because this has led you to a project that um, has kind of grown out of beyond the box, but is going to have its own life to a certain extent. And uh, we're trying to share that with our audience here. Uh, so why don't you talk just a little bit about that, and then we're going to share the first episode that you've done on your new podcast with our audience. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for those uh, ridiculously kind words. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they're I, true. 
I don't know that I'm completely comfortable being in in the same company as the as the people you mentioned, but because uh, uh, I I still have a long way to go. But man, I really appreciate that. And but I I, I have in this last few years, I have just discovered this passion for um just kind of you know I, I was finding myself for a long time reading a lot of books and and uh, talking to people who maybe didn't have the time to read those books or or were interested in a subject but maybe you know had only had a cursory experience with it and you know who has the time to sit down and read a lot of books or do a lot of research or right. whatever and i really felt this passion for taking these things that were seemingly complex or you know highly um detailed and distilling them down into a short format that was palatable that Mm -hmm. people could digest in a quick amount of time so that, you know, for instance, when, when I would do author interviews, my passion was kind of, you know, for those who will never read this book, here's something that you can listen to (laughs) and you can feel like you read the book and get the major, you know, it's kind of like a cliff's notes, a race notes, notes, it's raise notes, exactly (laughs) race notes on this book or on this author or this person, you know, and, uh, that, that passion has not went away at the same time. I've recognized that I have a passion for you and I to do what we're doing where we have this great dialogue and we were able to invite Mm -hmm. people into that conversation. So Instead of those two interests really competing on the same platform, you and I have right. thought long and hard and talked, you know, long and hard about how do we make both of those things happen in a really, it, it, how do we maximize both of those things? Exactly, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and uh, really, the the best the best way that we found forward was to actually create a new show that I'm going mm-hmm. to be doing that's kind of, I guess you, you could say it's almost kind of like a documentary cast. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, it's sort of a podcast, but um, mm. I feel like it's a little more than just the, most of the podcasts that I've heard in the sense of, you know, let's turn on some mics or interview some people, right. You know, glue them together and, you know, put it out there that has its place. Yeah. And, and I love that, but I've had all of these passions for a number of years. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a professional musician like you are, but I'm I'm a hobby musician. I love to I love to, you know, write music and play music, I and mean, mostly I've just done it for my own enjoyment for a number of years. But well, I can't, wait, let me interject here because right, you may not be a professional musician in the sense that you don't make money from it, but you're damn good at it. I, so I really appreciate uh, that, man. Yeah, let, let's not downplay that too much because that's a big part of, of this new project that you're working I, on. I really is, appreciate uh, that. You know, I don't, I don't even know if, if most of our listeners realize that you've written our theme music for the last two or three theme songs that we've had on this uh, podcast. That's That's been kind uh, of a fun, the box. A fun, a fun yeah. indulgence on my part. Just to, it's, it's been like an outlet to take something that's fun for me and say, hey, I can I have a reason to do it, you know. Exactly. Um, we started with some royalty-free stuff the first time around, and then you said, hey, wait a minute, I could write us a theme song. And you've done that. that that's been your baby. Uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that. That's sort of a little Easter egg about Beyond the Box. Um but that that has uh, is certainly playing a big role in uh, in what you're doing because you're creating a lot of original music too for your new program. That almost, you know, for some reason it reminds me. I don't know why I had this flashback, but I had this flashback to the uh, the other the other thing that used to play a significant role in Beyond the Box, and that was the chimes on my 
uh, grand, <laughs> on the grandfather clock in my living room. Um, so there, that that was, it's kind of an Easter egg like that. Everybody would listen and go, yes. "What time is it?" It's kind of like, "Well, what time were they recording?" Yeah, <laughs> fun beyond the box trivia. Ray wrote the theme music. Um, yep, exactly. But you know this this new this new podcast has kind of given me a venue to. It's just this creative outlet that I have been. Yeah. mulling in my mind for quite some time and going, I have all these different interests and I've told you for a long time, I have all these interests and I don't feel like I have any way of putting them all together. And it's kind of frustrated me on some level um, because right. I haven't felt like I had an outlet. And so in this new podcast, it's um, it's going to focus a lot on, I guess, I guess you'd say issues of peace and justice. Um, mm-hmm. And they're definitely, there'll definitely be spiritual overtones, but but I guess the heart of the matter is peace and justice and yeah. um, which I'm passionate about, but also all of the music is going to be original music. That's, that's written for the podcast. And then mm-hmm. it's, instead of being a single interview, most of the episodes I'm planning on having multiple voices within the format so that what I'm basically going to do is obtain hours of audio footage that I'm going to edit together in a single uh, episode, whether it's an hour, hour mm-hmm. and a half, 30 minutes, whatever, into a mm-hmm. single episode format, and then also make the extended interviews available for, you know, those nerdy folks out there like <laughs> me who like to kind of dig into to all aspects yeah. of an issue. So, well, and actually, can I say something about absolutely. that? Because that, that was, I didn't know you were going to do the extended interviews until you posted them. Uh, that fascinated me because this is, this is what I like about it, Ray. When, whenever somebody does any kind of a documentary, I always look at where the edit points are and I think, okay, what did they edit out in that interview? What mm. did they, what did, what did they tweak in the splicing room to get their point across? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you're driven by an agenda, but it just happens when you edit that stuff gets left out. Sure. When you post extended interviews like that, it's like, it's almost a way of saying, I'm not hiding anything. Mm. Mm. And I, mm. I, I, I didn't get a chance to tell you that. I'm telling you that for the first time right now. But that, that really resonated with me when I saw that on the website. I was Man. like, this is cool because this is like, this is not, um, yes, there's production involved and the episode itself is, is a very, you know, cleanly produced professional sounding broadcast. But then there's this other behind the scenes stuff that's just, it's raw. Mm, and mm. and especially your first topic that you dealt with, there's some really raw stuff in there. Um, so kudos to you for that idea because I didn't even know you were going to do that. And when I first saw that, I was like, "Oh yes, man, that's awesome!" You know, thank you so much for saying that because I honestly it, that that correlation never even occurred to me that it was kind of you know opening opening the curtain so to speak and letting people you know, kind of verify, uh, what I was choosing, the, the edits that I was choosing to combine into the, into the edited episode. So actually Mm -hmm. that really means a lot to me that you say that because it didn't even, the correlation didn't even hit me, but I will tell you in you saying that it was a very sobering experience to edit an episode because, Mm -hmm. um, there you have to be so careful and this, yep. you know, we've talked about this in the past in uh, when we would preach 
when we were when you and I were both pastors <laughs> in the institutional church, yeah. when we would preach on a topic and the temptation to take a scripture that didn't really yeah. say what you needed it to say. <laughs> and so yeah. but you know, you could squeeze it in to make it say that, and so sometimes you uh-huh. did. And I found myself even in this episode, there were certain points that I wanted to make. And right. And, uh, you know, I did have an agenda. I'll be very open and say I did have an agenda when I when I made this episode. I wanted to reveal mm-hmm. how horrifying the death penalty truly is and how yes. and how um, people just don't under, how the, the myths that are out there about the death penalty, uh, you know, things like it being more expensive to keep somebody alive on to incarcerate yeah. to incarcerate than to kill them or you know just yeah. all of these different myths out there I wanted to expose all of this so I did have an agenda but I will tell you that in that process of editing even though the people that I have on the podcast would agree with me at large on on what I was mm-hmm. doing there were moments when I I would find a piece of audio or so that I could edit <laughs> edit in such a way that it would be super effective, but yeah. if you listen to the whole paragraph that they were saying, it wouldn't uh-huh. have been as effective. And you know, there were temptations to include some of that stuff, but I tried to really minimize that for that right. very reason because I wanted to honor the the contributions of each person and not and and, and attempt to not twist their words any more than is necessary when you do an edit. Yeah. Um, yeah. but with that said, it, 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 it's, it has been a, it's, it's a, been a grueling experience, um, mm-hmm. to amass this amount of audio footage, edit this amount of audio footage and only to then go back and edit all of the audio footage to make that available <laughs> as well. It's been a huge project, right. but I tell you, it has been yeah. such a labor of love. And Steve, mm-hmm. I've told you multiple times over the last several months that I don't recall ever feeling the sense of urgency or passion, or I don't know what it is that I have mm-hmm. felt since, um, since getting involved in this topic, um, mm-hmm. the, that of the death penalty since, yeah. since I took it on myself to say, I'm going to do an episode on this. And, and originally mm-hmm. this was going to be a beyond the box episode. Be the box. Yep. Um, and because this is, you know, this is months and months and months ago, when I began mm-hmm. down this road, I think my original interviews began in probably March. And, uh, yeah. and even before that I was planning and, and beating the bushes mm-hmm. basically to find the people that I was going to interview. So I've been talking to you about this for quite some time. And, uh, there's just been this, this sense of urgency, importance, passion. I don't know what all, how many adjectives to use, but <laughs> I keep telling you, I keep telling my wife that this this episode just feels really, really important to me. I'm I'm yeah. not a person who normally, you know, on social media goes on and spams people <laughs> about you need <laughs> right. to you need to, you know, please check this out or or please like this. I've just never really been into that. I mean, you know me, I don't in the yeah. past I've never I've never really paid attention to stats. I've never paid attention to downloads. I've mm-hmm. never any of that stuff. But right. for some reason I just have this huge urgency to mm-hmm. put this out there to people. And so you were so gracious in this, this being, this is our podcast and I don't take that lightly. This is not my mm-hmm. platform. It's not your platform, but you've been so gracious to allow me to simulcast 
the first episode of the Mundane Revolution on Beyond the Box so that we could Absolutely. bring this to as many listeners as possible and uh, yeah. give them a chance to connect with this new project that I'm doing. So thank you so much for being open to doing this on Beyond the Box, Steve. Oh, absolutely. And like I've told you offline, Ray, I, I want people to know this is not uh, this is not something that's you, you know, pulling a John Lennon and going off solo. You know, it's yeah. this, this this is uh, this really has come out of, of both our efforts and, and both of us talking about it and um, just deciding that this was was really the best way. Like you said earlier, uh, I thought you said this really well, not uh, allowing the two passions to compete for each you know the same platform um so by returning beyond the box to its roots and allowing you to launch uh the mundane revolution um i think it's it's just the best of all worlds and uh bro you you know you have my support 150 percent on this um and i i'm very excited to be able to share this with our listeners um Anything you want to tell people about where to find this podcast before we throw them into the first episode? Because we're yeah. not going to come back and talk about this. We're just going to let it roll. It speaks for itself. Uh, once we get done talking here, the roller coaster is going to go by and you're going to be in the mundane revolution world. So why don't you give all the information you want to give now and then we'll get out of the way. Yeah, if you want to connect with what I'm doing with the Mundane Revolution, if you listen to this episode and you like what you hear and you want to hear more, visit themundanerevolution.com. Um, or you can type in mundanerevolution.com, either either or. Mm-hmm. Um, you can connect on Facebook with facebook.com slash mundanerevolution, I think. Or it might be the mundane. Re- I think it is the mundane revolution. Facebook.com slash the mundane revolution. Or you can connect on Twitter by going to twitter.com slash revolt. Twitter just doesn't. <laughs> they, Twitter doesn't like uh, doesn't long like long names. <laughs> handles. So I had to go with mundane revolt on that. So um, I like that. I, I kind of got a kick out of it actually. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, I thank thank you, Steve. Thank you to all the listeners out there for taking the time to to check out this episode and uh, just love if if you could drop me a line, let me know what you think. And here's here's the thing I ask. I Please realize if you're new to Beyond the Box and you're just listening to this, we've had seven plus years of podcasts and I've, I don't ever recall asking you to share something with your friends, (laughs) but, um, if, if you connect with what I'm doing in this episode, if you'll share it on social media, um, share it with some of your friends, I would so appreciate that. I think this is a topic that is, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in the process even of connecting on a deeper level with doing some, some work in the real world, um, with mm-hmm. the death penalty as well. And so, uh, you know, I don't want people to think this is just a, this is just a guy recording a podcast. Who's not trying to connect in the real world with this issue. I, I am very much. No, this is a life passion for you. I can tell that, bro. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's get the roller coaster going and, uh, I hope you enjoy the first episode of the mundane revolution entitled deconstructing the death penalty. Ray Crone used to believe in the death penalty. In his mind, as in the minds of most, it was a penalty that was reserved for the worst of the worst. He believed that when the government carried it out, it was with good reason. Raised in a small farm town in southern Pennsylvania, Ray attended the same church and high school as his grandparents and even great-grandparents. After serving in the U.S. Air Force, Ray settled into a career with the U.S. Post Office and even purchased his own home. He was living a normal, American, middle-class life. The death penalty wasn't something Ray thought much about. But all that changed on New Year's Eve, 
1991. At the age of 35, I was questioned for a murder of a local barmaid at a bar that I shot darts at. I played volleyball on their volleyball team. Uh, just two days after the murder, I was arrested uh, based on a medical examiner's testimony that marks on the body matched my teeth, and my teeth were unique, and I made those marks, so that made me the murderer. Yeah, the, the victim was a, was a manager at a, at a local bar. Uh, she was found stabbed to death in the men's bathroom, but there was no evidence of a break and no sign of a robbery. So the investigation was, was initiated under the assumption it had to be somebody that knew her, somebody had a relationship with her. They questioned uh, the co-workers, people that worked at the bar there with her, and one of them mentioned my name. So that being a lead, the police came to question me. They believed I was a boyfriend right away when I told them I'm not her boyfriend. I see her at the bar. That was it. They figured I was hiding something, noticed my crooked teeth, remembered a mark on the body, had a medical examiner who was just currently going through some training to identify bite marks. They uh, took a, a cast of my teeth, said it matched, and just two days after they found Kim's body, they actually arrested me for that murder. Imagine, one day you're living the life of an average American citizen, and the next, you're behind bars, facing the possibility of execution, and trying to figure out just what went wrong. Welcome to the Mundane Revolution. I'm Rayburn Johnson. Today, we'll talk about a subject that we're all aware of, but few have taken time to ponder, the death penalty. After a four-year suspension by the U.S. Supreme Court, the death penalty was reinstituted in 1976, and since then, over 1,400 people have been put to death. Today, we'll talk with Jane, a former death row media witness turned death row counselor, Frank, a retired warden responsible for overseeing the death penalty for the state of Oregon, Mark, a conservative working to bring a new awareness of the death penalty to his colleagues, Bill, who experienced a radical shift in his understanding of the death penalty after his grandmother was brutally murdered, and Ray, an innocent man who was sentenced to die and later distinguished as the 100th American death row exoneree. Let's get back to Ray's story. So, Ray finds himself behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. However, he still trusted the justice system and believed the truth would eventually lead to his release. His family didn't have the thousands of dollars required to hire a private defender, so Ray, believing it would be impossible to be convicted of a crime he didn't commit, decided to entrust his case to a public defender. I was given a court-appointed attorney, which was assigned to me, which uh, it was granted $5,000 to defend me. Wow. $5,000 to defend you. Had, had, your, had your attorney ever tried a murder case before? He was more experienced. I was actually originally charged also with a sexual assault. I was acquitted of that at trial, but he had done some rape cases before. As far as I know, he had never done a murder case. Um, and I'm not sure what you have to do to get your name on a court-appointed list. Uh, I'm not sure why he was appointed to represent me, but it was known to be a capital murder case, and he did not have experience with capital murder cases. Your attorney was paid $5,000, and I've heard you say that the bite mark attorney or the bite mark expert was paid over $50,000 for his testimony. Uh, that's, that's quite true. Uh, in fact, the local medical examiner that originally identified me was actually not a board-certified forensic odontologist, a fancy name for a bite mark uh, specialist. He wouldn't have qualified as an expert in a court of law. Prosecution realized that. They went out and hired another expert who was a board-certified odontologist. A uh, very impressive man, very well-spoken, very powerful speaker, convincing. Uh, and also, we later found out, paid over $50,000 for his work in my case. The financial disparity between the prosecution seeking to prove Ray's guilt and his inexperienced public defender seeking to prove his innocence was immense. 
Yet, even with the deck stacked against him, Ray refused to accept a plea bargain for a crime he didn't commit. Your attorney wanted you to take a plea bargain, but you refused. Can you talk about that? <laughs> it wasn't even really a choice. It wasn't even a thought. It could cross my mind. Why would I plead to something you know, I didn't do? And this isn't just you know a, a minor crime. I use the example a lot of times when I go and address uh, students, uh, law students, university stuff. I say, how many of you had brothers and sisters? And you see all the hands go up. I said, how many ever been blamed for something your brother or sister done? And most all of them hands stay up. I was the oldest in my family. I know I got blamed for things my little brother or sister. And sometimes you just take the blame, take the punishment, and move on. It's not so drastic. But this was murder. This was my life in prison, the rest of life. And it was also the principles of everything I ever stood for and believed in. Uh, there was there was no chance that I was going to take a plea bargain. Uh, but there also, in my being naive, I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't do it different. But also being naive, I also thought there was no chance of me ever being convicted and sentenced to death for something I didn't do. During the trial, Ray sat in disbelief as the prosecution painted a picture of him as a monster and an unremorseful killer. And I told my, my attorney, I said, I got nothing to mitigate. I didn't do this. He said, well, we'll put your family, your friends on the stand and testify to your good background. And I'd, uh, after what I've been through in my cross-examination, my roommate's cross-examination at trial, I said, there's no way you're putting my mom, my sister on that stand and be cross-examined by that prosecutor. I said, there's no way it's not going to happen. And he told me, you're going to have to tell the judge that. So I told the judge that. I said, Your Honor, I got no remorse. I said, you have the wrong person. Uh, as, I, as I tell some of the people I speak with, I said, how do you show remorse for something you didn't do? So I was promptly called a, a heartless killer, an unremorseful monster, and at that time sentenced to death. And that's just what happened. After only a three-day trial and a mere three hours of deliberation, the jury found Ray guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death. But uh, when when they, you know, found me guilty, and I was like, oh, yeah. And then, of course, the sentencing, which was a few months later, it's like, well, you might as well kill me. Everything I ever stood for, believed in, has been taken from me. My freedom, my my, my reputation, uh, you know, and, and it's a funny thing. I think we all care a lot about our material things. I mean, I had some toys. I wasn't, wasn't married, and I had a decent payment to post off. So I had a Corvette, a four-wheel drive truck, motorcycle, I raced stock cars, I had a boat. But none of that stuff mattered at that time. It was like all that mattered was, was my family going to be okay? And how was I ever going to get the, the truth out? How, how long was this going to take? Were they going to kill me? So many things running through your head that you never, ever thought you could comprehend or, or, or could ever come to pass uh, were now something that I had to deal with. Uh, and it, it was it was a, a, a difficult time. All those things that you ever stood for and believed that were all suddenly a, a long, long way off and, and maybe never attainable again because they were trying to kill you. Ray went through a second trial. This time, his family and friends raised thousands of dollars so he could receive the representation of a highly qualified and experienced attorney, an attorney who believed in Ray so much that he even donated some of his services. Friends held raffles and donated their income tax returns. Family members took out loans and cashed in retirement funds. This time around, his defense was solid. His attorney presented DNA evidence, filtered through police reports, and showed how the bite mark expert from the first trial, had misrepresented the bite mark evidence that had been so crucial in convicting Ray. This time, Ray was sure that justice would prevail and he would finally be a free man again. 
But anyway, again, as I said, this, this, the, the trial lasted that long, and I, I still sitting there hearing the truth come out, thinking, yeah, but the, the DNA doesn't match. Yeah, the bite mark doesn't match. But I still didn't realize how important it is for prosecution to win these cases and how how far this man was willing to go. Because he, 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 the prosecutor has the last words to the jury before they're dismissed to deliberate. He has the very last say to those to those jury members. And he stood in front of them and told them to disregard the DNA, ignore the DNA. It has no bearing. It has no value in this case. We know who committed this horrible murder. He's sitting right here in the courtroom. You as a juror is responsible to see that justice is done for Kim and her family. Don't let the defense mislead you. That's all they've been doing this whole trial. He said that DNA is easy to explain. She's a waitress that was just transferred there by accident from somebody else's bottle or glass. And, of course, the jury was out for three and a half days this time. Ray was filled with hope, and he believed that this time it would be impossible for the jury not to see the truth. However, much to Ray's surprise, a guilty verdict was once again delivered. So the jury comes back after three and a half days, and they find you guilty for a second time. Yeah, after three and a half days, they were they, they come out, uh, filed in, passed the paper over to the to the, the bailiff of the courts, and, and I could see tears started to come down their cheeks, and they started reading the verdict, and they found me guilty. And I, I like, whoa, stop, back up, come on, rewind this. No, you don't mean that. How can that be? I mean, I was. I was just deflated like a balloon, all the air. I was like, no, you got to be kidding me. My, my parents were so the, the local media was out there reporting it from York, Pennsylvania, had newsmen there every day, you know, running headlines. The papers back home were all saying how the evidence clearly pointed to someone else that I was going to be acquitted. And they just said guilty. And, and the jurors are crying and the judge's voice is breaking up when he got to look at his trying to talk. And my attorney's hanging on my shoulder about tears, crying. I'm like, God, Ray, I can't believe they didn't see the truth. What were they thinking? It's it's not over yet, Ray. I'll be with you till the end. And I look over at the prosecution's table, and they're all jumping up and down, high-fiving like they just won the big ball game. And this is all in, in snapshots going on in, in seconds. And I'm just looking around saying, no, no, this can't be real. And then all of a sudden, something snapped me back to reality because I heard this most horrible scream and wail from my mom and my sister not five feet behind me in that courtroom and to turn around and see that pain in their eyes and, and the fear and everything. I'd say, Mom, don't cry. Amy, it'll be all right. My little sister, I, I realized they're not just doing it to me. They're doing it to my family. And then it came time for sentencing and to hear the judge say that this case was going to haunt him for the rest of his life, that, that, that it was hard for him to believe was somebody in my background could have committed this murder. And he said he had lingering residual doubt of my guilt. And he said that was a mitigating factor that outweighed the aggravating factor. So then he sends me to 25 to life for the murder and then added 21 more on for the kidnap. I'm like, wait a minute, you don't think I did it? So now you're just, basically that means 46 years minimum I was facing. I was 35 when it happened, so you had 46 to that. You know, I would have had to be 81 years old for my first opportunity at parole. Uh, so it was a death sentence. I wasn't going to be laid on a gurney and have a lethal cocktail shot into my veins for the name of the good people of the state of Arizona, but I wasn't going to live to be 81 in our prison system. For Ray, this was the ultimate disappointment. The state wouldn't kill him, but they would effectively take his life moment by moment for the rest of his days. Ray ultimately spent over 10 years in a maximum security prison, with almost three of those being on death row. He was present for prison riots. He witnessed gang violence and spent his days behind steel bars in a 6x8 cinder block cell the size of most people's bathroom. His only solace? 
an excursion to a cage outside for two hours, three days a week. I got out of that cell three times a week. That was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday was recreation day. You got out for two hours. You were first uh, strip searched, uh, shackled at both the, the waist with your hands uh, belted, uh, belted to your waist and handcuffs. Shackled at the ankles, two officers escorted you. Never had physical contact with other inmates. You were always kept single. Uh, two uh, guards would always uh, uh, walk you. Uh, you walked down the steps, outdoors, shuffling in your chains around your bare ankles. Taken out in the desert where they had 10-foot square slab of concrete. It was uh, surrounded by hurricane fencing, 10 feet high with fence across the top. And you were put in there for two hours. And that was my escape from that cell, that hole in the wall, uh, you know, that I, I was out there in the sunshine. Maybe I could could see a plane fly or maybe a, a bird, maybe hear a car horn honk, maybe a, a lawnmower, a dog bark, anything to remind me that I was still a human being. There was still another world outside those walls. Ray was eventually released when the state of Arizona passed a new law regarding the testing and admissibility of DNA evidence. Ray's attorney petitioned the courts to have previously untested DNA evidence from the crime scene examined. The results were conclusive. The DNA was not Ray's. Came back with a match to a man that that very moment right there by then, it was early 2002, but he was serving a 10-year sentence for having sexually assaulted a child just a few weeks after the murder. A man who at the time of the murder was actually on parole from another sexual assault. He spent some time in, in, in Department of Corrections was paroled to his mom's house whose address was just down the block from the bar in Phoenix, Arizona. This man eventually admitted getting into an argument with the victim in the bathroom of the bar where the victim was found. He woke up later with blood on him and wondered, what did I do? This admission of guilt was recorded by Ray's investigator and brought to the prosecutor to demand Ray's release. The prosecutor didn't seem interested, though. His mind was made up. He insisted that he had already proven Ray's guilt in a court of law. I'm told that prosecutor looked at him and said, he's not going anywhere. We have the bite mark evidence. Wasn't interesting, the truth. Didn't care about this DNA, did not want to hear it. Again, another fortuitous circumstance with a local reporter there in the Arizona Republic. Uh, Phoenix, of course, is a very large city, uh, big readership. A local reporter got, got onto the case and just a few days wrote in the, it was a front page banner headline story about how I was still serving life sentence. After being on death row for a crime I clearly didn't commit, and they knew who now did do it, a man named Kenneth Phillips. Very well written, very very professional, very informative, honest, truthful, and also apparently very embarrassing in the prosecution police department. The next day, Ray received the call he had been waiting over a decade for. He said, your attorney's on the phone, and the counselor handed me the phone. It was my attorney in Phoenix. He said, Ray, how you doing today? Another day in paradise, and he... He said, he kind of laughed. He said, what are you hungry for? He said, no, really, what do you want? Steak, seafood, Mexican food, a beer? What would you like? I said, Alan, what the devil are you talking about? That's when he said, "Uh, Ray, I just got off the phone with the prosecutor's office. They just got back from the judge's chambers. They're cutting the paperwork. They're coming home today. Ray became the 100th person to be exonerated from death row in the United States. Uh, they had different uh, different groups around the country for were waiting for this moment. Uh, I know my sister was involved in a thing in Dickerson Law School in Pennsylvania where they lit 100 candles for the 100 of us. They actually lit up the lights in the Colosseum in Rome. They do that now when states have watched death rate. They lit the lights up in Rome with my release, the Colosseum. And there was a lot of media coverage outside waiting for this. What's it like to be free? What are you going to do now? How did you survive? And 
and I, they were all out there. And I, I, I talked about, you know, the support of my family, how I read the Bible front to back three and a half times in those 10 years, slept with it under my pillow. A reporter in the back raised his hand. He said, well, Mr. Crone, given your faith in God, how do you justify him leaving you in prison for 10 years? <laughs> I thought, what? How do I, how do I justify God leaving me in prison for 10 years? And, I, and my mind was blank, and they're all leaning forward with the cameras in my ear. There had to be a dozen of them. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's not about those 10 years in prison. Maybe it's about what I have to do the next 10 years. For over 10 years now, Ray has shared his story with others, working toward the abolition of the death penalty. He is the Director of Membership and Training for Witness to Innocence. You can learn more about Ray and Witness to Innocence by visiting witnesstoinnocence.org. Ray Crone escaped the death penalty, but many never leave death row alive. However, unlike Ray, many who suffered the death penalty aren't innocent. It's clear to everyone that Ray Crone should not have been sentenced to die. But what about those who have committed heinous acts? What about those who have brutally killed another person? Jane Davis first encountered the death penalty as a media witness. She was asked to attend the execution of a man who, unlike Ray, was not believed to be innocent. So we were given instructions. We walked in, um, filed in, and we were told where to sit. Now, when you walk in, they're like three rows. They look like church pews. And there were vomit bags at every seat. And there's a, a huge um, glass window and the electric chair is on the other side. And so we were um, ushered into our seats and, you know, we sat down and then um, other witnesses came in because they're also, he has witnesses, uh, the victim's family has witnesses, you know, so um, it, it's very orchestrated. And then at, at one point when um, they were getting ready, they uh, brought Chris from the holding cell into the chamber. And so he was standing in the doorway between the holding cell. And his eyes found, I was in like at the second or third row. And again, I did not know him. And he came out and his eyes found mine. And I had my hands on the seat. I was sitting forward almost like in total disbelief. I was almost frantically looking around the room, trying to find other eyes to go, what are we doing? And I wanted to leap up and yell, stop. It was crazy. And I didn't do that, of course. And they led him to the seat, uh, to the electric chair, and they're strapping him in, and I was just mouthing to him, I love you, Chris, go in peace. And I was just saying that over and over, and he was watching until they put the flap on, and they pull the switch, and I mean, I don't even want to describe it, it's so gruesome. It was gruesome, that's all I can say. And I, and I was dumbfounded, I, I mean, there are no words, and so I never wrote about it. I never wrote about it. Um, I don't remember at that point the time, but we had to wait. I think you have to wait like 15 minutes for the body to cool down enough so that a doctor can come in and check to make sure he's dead and touch his body, you know, with a stethoscope. Um, but it was afterwards, I know I was in shock. 
And I had about a 45-minute drive home. And and I stopped at Den... I mean, it was so insane. I wanted to stop at a radio station and go, you are not going to believe what I just witnessed. So I went to Denny's of all... Maybe to this day I hate Denny's. That could be why. But I just sat there, like, thinking... I just watched a man be killed in front of my eyes. And I always say it's more in front of my heart and soul than my eyes. Um, And now here I am at Denny's having a pancake. This experience changed Jane's life. She went on to start Hope House, which stands for Help Other People Evolve Through Honest, Open, Willing Self-Evaluation. Jane now travels to death rows and prisons all around the country. And as a journalist, she once wrote an article entitled, I Met God on Death Row, in which she reflects on her experiences with death row inmates. In the article, she puts forth a question and an answer. Why am I a Jew walking with those most thrown away? Because it is there that I find God and love and a human spiritual element that I would never imagine existed. I wanted to meet people who had really fallen from grace um, in a major way. I always say we're much more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I believe that. And so when I say I met God on death row, well, I'm meeting human beings. I'm not meeting the acts. And I'm meeting these people who I believe can change and can heal. It might sound odd to hear someone speak of meeting God on death row, but Jane describes one such experience with a death row inmate named Max. My phone rang, and it was an, an attorney in, uh, from North Carolina who introduced himself and said, I just read your article in the Jewish Times, and I have a client on death row in Texas. Could you see him? And it was kind of like, Sure. Now, it's very unusual in two days to get cleared to visit someone on death row, especially when that person hasn't requested you. So, but the attorney was asking that I see this. That was kind of the beginning and things just unfold. So I I got to death row and um, they told Max uh, so far that someone, a woman was there to see him and he came out just curious a woman's there to see you yeah so when he when he came out I I kind of introduced myself and I said Max I actually don't really know why I'm here except maybe to remind you that you're a beautiful man and he's like looking at me you know with his head cocking crossed eyes like what who are you and and so we talked a lot Max was Jewish And we talked about different things of Jewish and death row. So here, you know, with this stranger, our first meeting, I had a four-hour visit with him. And in Texas, you meet behind glass that's ribboned with with, uh, wire. So all of a sudden, the guard knocks, 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, how do you end this? So... All of a sudden, it just, it naturally came to me 
I put my hands, oh, I said, Max, when was the last time you said the Shema? And the Shema is the most sacred prayer in Judaism. And he just, I could tell by his face, it was like forever. So I just put my hands up like this, webbed fingers on the glass. He put from the other side of the glass, matched my hands, and I just started saying the Shema. Shema Yisroel, Adonai Eloheinu. And his eyes filled with tears were running down his face. He was watching my lips and mouthing it with me. And then it was almost on cue, the guard knocked. Time was up. And, And that was the end of our first visit. Jane has had numerous experiences that have convinced her that people on death row are more than murderers and monsters, and that these men and women have intrinsic dignity and worth. You know, we, we, I believe that we are far more than the worst thing we've ever done, and that we all have the ability to change. To learn more about Jane Davis and the work of Hope House, visit hope-house.org. That's H-O-P-E dash H-O-W-S-E dot O-R-G. One aspect of the death penalty that's often overlooked is the effect it has on those tasked to carry it out. The correctional officers, staff, and wardens responsible for actually ending the life of those whom the state has condemned. Former warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary, Frank Thompson, knows this aspect all too well. Only two death sentences have been carried out in Oregon during the last 50 years, and Frank was responsible for the oversight and protocol of both. From the legislature, getting the policies and law and procedures, to staffing, to training, and to standing in the room and giving the nod for the chemicals to start flowing, there, looking at the inmate, that's how close I was to the procedures. Now, one of the concerns I always had, always had, with this being the first time in 32 years, I actually was more concerned about there being, I wanted there to be only one victim. I did not want my staff to be victims. What started as a job for Frank quickly became something more. Because of his intimate involvement with every aspect of Oregon's death penalty, he couldn't simply carry out his job or perform his task by rote. What for many death penalty advocates is mere ideology became a living reality for Frank. Uh, Day to day, the feeding, the watching, the setting up of the execution room. I had to design the execution rooms because, and I became, and all of this is important for you to understand in this interview. Because had I walked into this environment and the execution process was already in place, like a good soldier, I probably would have walked in, lockstep, done my job, flipped to the pages, see what needed to be done, line two, line three, gotten the job done. And you may not be having this interview with me today. one heck of a time finding someone to do an execution. I'm new myself. I'm within Oregon now about 18 months conducting the first execution. So 
all of that, I'm overwhelming you with a lot of seemingly disassociated little facts, but what I'm painting for you is a person who can no longer sort of put executions and taking a life out here as some kind of mission statement and following it like you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you rehearsed it. This thing became every part of my being. Frank began to see that the carrying out of the death penalty never ended with only one victim. The men and women who were assisting him in carrying out the sentence of death did not escape unscathed. I've become aware of uh, some people who had some tough times. Mm-hmm. and uh, As a direct but, result of that. Yeah, as having to participate in the capacities that they did, uh, that it is absolutely something that they would never want to be able to have to do again. Here I am training these men and women to go and kill somebody. And we can't even make a convincing statement anymore that it is making our community safer. And that is something else that we get caught up in. We get caught up in the emotion of capital punishment when we fail to realize that capital punishment is a public policy. And public policy is supposed to address the welfare and well-being of the majority of people in the community. Whereas retribution and getting at that guy on death row is so narrowly focused, it misses the intent of sound public policy. We are asking decent men and women to take the life of a human being in the name of a public policy that cannot be shown to work, especially when applying evidence-based scrutiny of the process, we come up with any defensible outcomes. And that's where the immorality comes. When you commit men and women to these kinds of challenges, post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, mental illness, and we commit them to these without other... We've been at this man, I don't know how many years now, the experiment's over. And we, when we ask young men and women to go in and take the life of a human being in the name of a public policy that cannot be shown to work, it is immoral. Frank carried out two death sentences during his tenure as the director of the Oregon State Penitentiary. In the beginning, Frank didn't question his ability to oversee an inmate's death. He supported it, and he believed in it. But over time, that support eroded. So, in every sense of the way it word, I supported it. But after getting into it and beginning to train my staff and realizing I was training my staff to take the life of a human being in the name of a public policy that was not working, couldn't work, it became immoral to such a huge extent 
that I could no longer support it. Today, Frank shares his unique experiences and insights into the death penalty through his work with Oregonians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, or OADP. You can find out more by visiting OADP's website, OADP.org. Many people believe the death penalty is an issue that serves to divide the left from the right. Many view endorsement of the death penalty as a hallmark of conservatism, while the case for abolition could only come from left-leaning liberals. Mark Hyden of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty once felt this way himself. He believed his conservative views demanded that he support the death penalty. However, after further consideration, Mark began to deconstruct the stereotype and now believes the death penalty is actually a betrayal of conservative values, values that include physical responsibility, a pro-life stance, and a belief in limited government. I didn't realize how many people have been wrongly convicted. We're close to 100 or over 150 now. And there's many that may have been executed who were innocent, which is is very scary. But I didn't realize either that uh, all the instances of taxes uh, uh, being raised to cover this expensive process. So finally, I had come to a moment where I knew it wasn't pro-life. I knew it wasn't fiscally responsible. And I knew it wasn't limited government. But something inside of me said, I've got to find a way to support this death penalty because that's what us conservatives do. So I told myself, if I can find a study or something that says that more lives are saved through deterrence than wrongly executed by the state, then perhaps I can consider this a worthwhile program. First of all, that's a utilitarian argument, which does not belong in conservatism or libertarianism. But then you see all these studies that have come out that say the death penalty doesn't deter murder. Some of the states that have repealed it actually saw murder rates go down after they repealed it. There's no causal relationship between executions and murder rates. So once I found that out, I had nothing left to grasp into. And now I oppose the death penalty, and I firmly believe that it's antithetical to conservative principles. A common myth among those who support the death penalty is that it's more expensive to sentence someone to life in prison than to carry out a death sentence. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The reason the death penalty is more expensive is because the initial trial is actually many times longer than comparable trials. There's more motions, there's more witnesses, there's more attorneys, there's usually a change of venue and jury sequestration, and many other issues that make it many times more expensive. But then there's an additional trial, and this is something that most people don't know about. There's a second trial that is unique to capital cases. It exists just to see if the offender can be executed, which seems kind of bizarre to me. So that adds to the cost. And then after that, there's this much maligned appeals process, which it does take a long time, but it does serve a purpose too. Uh, It's very complex, and there's three levels of a capital appeals Uh, And whereas in life without parole, there's only one level. So it adds a lot of cost that way. And in the end, you have to house these inmates somewhere. So they're housed on death row. And a recent study found that death row is about twice as expensive as housing an inmate on uh, in a, a, 
maximum security prison in general population where people serving life without parole spend their time. So that's why it's more expensive. And it's caused many problems uh, on the municipal level. I know in, in my home state here in Georgia, there was a county, Lincoln County, Georgia, and they were trying to execute someone. And they were uh, pretty gung-ho about doing it uh, for whatever reason. And it turned out they ran out of money trying to uh, execute this person because the initial trial was so expensive that they raised taxes multiple times. So eventually the county commissioner said, uh-uh, we've had enough. We're not paying another dime on this expensive and lengthy process. But the judge disagreed and says you're not allowed to renege on your debt. So he threw the whole county commission in jail. And this is where it gets interesting. They had to convene a special hearing of the county commission from jail to approve the appropriations in order to be released. There is no doubt the death penalty is astronomically expensive. It costs taxpayers millions of extra dollars each year compared to life sentences. However, Something that's especially concerning for Mark and his organization is the possibility and actuality of innocent people being executed by the state. As one who holds firmly to a pro-life stance, this is deeply troubling for Mark. He shares the highly disturbing story of Claude Jones, an innocent man who was put to death by the state of Texas. The FBI is looking into over 2,000 cases and actually 27 capital cases where they may have used unreliable uh, testimony regarding hair analysis. And what they would do is they would find a hair at the scene of the crime and pluck a hair out of the head of the alleged offender and compare the two. And if they thought it looked like it matched, then they would call that science, and that would be another uh, notch against the offender. So they used this, uh, and it may have led to some disastrous consequences. And one of the cases I always like to talk about is that of Claude Jones. He was convicted and executed for allegedly murdering a man in a liquor store in Texas. And in 2000, he was executed. Um, and after they had used this key evidence, what they called central evidence for his case, was this hair analysis. And after he was executed, they used DNA evidence to, uh, or analysis to find out that that was not his hair after all. Yet another troubling and often overlooked aspect of the death penalty is its effect on the family members of the victim. Many people feel the death penalty offers closure to the victim's family and gives them a sense of justice. However, Mark believes the death penalty often has the exact opposite effect, as it strings the victim's family members along on an emotional roller coaster that lasts for years as appeals and execution dates come and go. Mark believes that life imprisonment allows family members to move on with their lives much more quickly than a sentence of death. And one of the most one of the most uh, disturbing stories I, I've heard is when I was speaking in Indianapolis. I heard a nice lady talk about her experience. Her name was Suzanne Bossler. And her father was a minister, a minister who opposed the death penalty. And he told his daughter, if I'm ever murdered, make sure the offender doesn't receive a death sentence. Well, unfortunately, her father was murdered. And Suzanne was, was subpoenaed to be a witness at the trial for the, uh, against the offender, in which she was, she was happy to come uh, be a witness. But she was threatened before she, she came to court. She was not threatened by the offender. She was threatened by the state. They said, if you say that your father was against the death penalty, or if you say that you're against the death penalty, we will throw you in jail and hold you in contempt of court. 
So this fiction, this myth out there about the death penalty being there for murder victims' friends and family members, I just don't buy into it because oftentimes their wishes, they're not even considered. Mark believes the death penalty is an antiquated policy that itself needs to be put to death. So slowly, I think you're seeing the death penalty is becoming obsolete uh, through work with with uh, what many litigators are doing, as well as different state campaigns. And it's slowly, slowly becoming obsolete. I know executions, I believe, are at a 20-year low, as well as death sentences are at a 40-year low. So more and more, we're saying that states aren't using the death penalty anymore, and we're finding that a lot of counties uh, – they can't afford to use the death penalty, so they don't even go after it as an option. Uh, right now, 2% of all U.S. counties account for the majority of all death sentences in the United States. And I think that highlights another problem of the arbitrariness of the death penalty. You can commit uh, two identical murders in two adjacent counties and receive two different death sentences – or two different sentences, excuse me, one of life without parole and the other of death because most counties, they don't use the death penalty and there's no way that they could afford to use it anyway. Here, Mark highlights what he sees as a glaring weakness in the administration of the death penalty. Not only is it unfairly applied, but it actually targets minorities and the poor. The criminal justice system, you know, we're told is supposed to be blind, um, and of course it's not. There are two really good indicators um, that can let you know whether or not you have a good, pro- a high probability of being sentenced to death, and they're economic and racial. If you look at the race of the victim, uh, that generally lets you know whether or not they're going to seek a death sentence. White victims often uh, lead to more death sentences as opposed to African American victims, and the other issue is. Is economic people that can't afford good attorneys, uh, and let's be honest, an attorney for a murder case can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you have to be very rich to have that kind of of money to afford an attorney that's that's worthwhile. So many of them that don't have that kind of money have to rely on uh, public attorneys um, that are appointed to them. And many times these are not the best of the best attorneys, and I don't want to put down any attorneys that that uh, do pro bono work. Uh, but many of the court-appointed attorneys have very little experience. They may be fresh out of college, and I've heard of examples where these attorneys – they didn't even practice criminal justice uh, or criminal law. They actually practiced uh, uh, insurance law, and somehow they got appointed to a death case. And I've also heard of these these uh, attorneys in, in New York as well as in Texas. One fell asleep during trial, and the other one kept showing up to court drunk. And of course, if you have this kind of representation, it's not going to bode well for you. Uh, so my recommendation, uh, you know, is I, I guess get a really, really large loan and hope nothing bad ever happens to you. Mark envisions abolition as a cause which can transcend party lines. He believes that people across the entire political and ideological spectrum can agree. The death penalty is not beneficial to any of us. We're seeing that both the left and right are coming together for for various reasons. We may not agree on why we should oppose the death penalty, but we are coming together. And I think there's something... um, beautiful in that. We live in this age where bipartisanship 
has become taboo, where you're not supposed to reach across the aisle. But this is an issue that offends both the left, the right, the centrist, the libertarians, everybody. And I think that's great that we can come together and finally gr- uh, agree on an issue like this. To find out more about Mark Hyden and conservatives concerned about the death penalty, you can visit conservativesconcerned.org. Earlier, Mark Hyden mentioned the emotional roller coaster that a sentence of death brings to both the family and friends of the victim. Few of us can even imagine the overwhelming sense of loss and grief that accompanies the murder of a loved one. Bill Pelkey has walked this road. He knows it intimately. On May 14, 1985, Bill's grandmother, Ruth Pelkey, was brutally murdered in her home by a group of teenage girls who exchanged her life for $10 and a joyride in Mrs. Pelkey's car. Bill shares his story. Well, these four girls actually had were in the ninth grade of Lewallis High School, uh, a high school in the Glen Park section of Gary, Indiana, in fact, same high school that my father went to. Uh, during the lunch hour, the students were allowed to leave the school grounds in those days, and they would go to Burger King, Taco Bell, McDonald's, whatever, have lunch and go back to school. But on this day, these four girls knew they weren't going to return when the rest of the students did. They were going to play hooky, uh, ditch school for the rest of the day. They went to one of the girls' homes that lived near the school. Um, they sat around the dining room table. It was just the four girls. Uh, and they drank some some wine and some liquor and um, smoked some marijuana and began to talk about what they're going to do for the rest of the day. Uh, they had the afternoon free. They could do whatever they wanted to do. And they decided they would like to play uh, video arcade games at the local arcade a block away on Broadway, the main street that runs through Gary. But they had a problem. They didn't have any money. So they began to talk among themselves about how can we get some money? How can we get some money? And finally, the girl whose house they were at said, well, there's an old lady. She lives across the alley from me and back. Uh, She teaches Bible lessons in the neighborhood. Uh, She lives alone. She doesn't have a dog or anything like that. I think she has money. And she told the other three girls that that they should go knock on her door and tell this old lady they wanted to take her Bible lessons. And she said she felt the old lady would let them in the house and they could rob her. And she told the girls that she'd stay back outside as a lookout because the old lady would recognize her and know who she was. And so the girls agreed on that plan. And a short time later, three of the girls went up and they knocked on my grandmother's door. Uh, my grandmother answered the door and they said, Mrs. Pelkey, we'd like to take your Bible lessons. And my grandmother told the girls to come on into the house and to know my grandmother. Uh, this is what my grandmother would do. And so at the age of 78 years old, it was one more chance for her to share her faith with young people. She told the girls to come in. The girls came in the house. Donna turned her back and go to her desk to get some information for the Bible classes. One of the girls grabbed a vase off the end table. And as my grandmother fell to the floor, another girl pulled a knife out of her purse and began to stab her. While this girl was stabbing her, the other two girls went to the house looking for money. Uh, they came back a short time later where the one girl was still stabbing Nana. Uh, and they told her we can't find any money. So she told another girl to take the knife. And, and she began to go through the house, ransacking the house, uh, pulling out dresser drawers in the bedroom, in the living room, and uh, looking everywhere trying to find money. Uh, the girls came up with a total of $10 uh, and the keys to my grandmother's old car. And my father found my grandmother's body there on the dining room floor of, of the home. And, uh, and you can imagine how, how terrible it was for him, 
uh, and for the rest of our family that my grandmother could have died in such a horrible way. While four girls participated in this grisly crime, only two had handled the knife. Of these two, only 16-year-old Paula Cooper was sentenced to die, making her the youngest person in the United States to be on death row at that time. Initially, Bill felt some sense of satisfaction that Paula would be executed. In his mind, she was getting exactly what she deserved. And she became the youngest female on death row in the United States. And that was okay with me. Um, I knew we had a death penalty. I knew different people were being sentenced to death for various crimes of murder. Some were being executed even at that point. And I felt if they didn't give the death penalty to the person that killed my grandmother, then they're telling me, well, you know, your grandmother was not an important enough person to merit the perpetrator for being put to death. And I felt my grandmother was a very important person. So for that reason alone, I had no problem when the death sentence was given. While Bill felt that justice had been served, he recognized the hole in his heart could not be filled by a death sentence. No amount of punishment could bring back his grandmother. I remember when we walked out of the courtroom that day, there were a lot of television cameras present. They asked me for my opinion. And I said, well, I felt like the judge did what he had to do. And then I, fighting back tears, I said, but it won't bring my grandmother back. As time went on, Bill found his hard feelings for Paula Cooper challenged by the life and faith of his grandmother. One night, while he was on the job at the steel factory, Bill began to think about the tears of Paula Cooper's grandfather as she was sentenced to die. He then began to imagine his own grandmother's tears, tears that she surely would shed for Paula Cooper and her grandfather. Suddenly, Bill felt certain that his grandmother's response to Paula and her family would be one of compassion rather than judgment. And then I began to picture an image of my grandmother. There had been a very beautiful picture taken of my grandmother shortly before her death. And whenever the newspapers would do a story about the trials or about the death sentence uh, or about the murder itself, they would always show this one very beautiful picture. And I, I've got a copy of it. But but I began to envision a copy of this picture. Wow. what a She, she just has such a pleasant face for those who are listening. I mean, just such a such a sweet, sweet spirit is coming through that picture. Yeah. And, and I began to envision... A, an image of this picture, but with one distinct difference. I envisioned tears coming out of my grandmother's eyes and streaming down her cheeks. Mm. And I knew that they were tears of love and compassion for Paula Cooper and her family. I knew my grandmother would not want this grandfather to have to go through what a grandfather would have to go through to see a granddaughter that he loved very much strapped into the electric chair and the voice of electricity put to her till she was dead. I knew my grandmother would not wish this on that old man and would have had compassion. And I also thought about Paula Cooper. And even though Paula Cooper had brutally killed Nana, Nana had invited her to her house because she wanted to tell her about her love for God. And I was convinced that Nana would have rather somebody from our family or our church or our community try to continue to share that faith about God rather than being so interested in seeing her put to death. Because it seemed like everybody in Northwest Indiana was full of hate and anger and he wanted this girl to die, and she couldn't die soon enough. And I knew my grandmother would not have been happy with that, and she would have, in fact, had love and compassion. And I thought to myself, wow, 
and my, my, my faith is calling me to forgive. And I remember kind of thinking to myself, well, maybe someday I will. But once again, I began to picture this image of Nana. And with the tears coming out of her eyes and streaming down her cheeks, and there was no doubt in my mind they were tears of love and compassion for Paula and her family. And I felt my grandmother wanted someone in my family to have that same sort of love and compassion. I felt like it fell on my shoulders. But even though I knew forgiveness was the right thing, love and compassion, that's another story. I didn't have a bit because Nana had been very brutally murdered. And yet those tears uh, that I pictured her eyes dictated me, I try to generate some sort of compassion. I felt if I didn't at least try, that whenever I would think about her again, I would feel guilty that I hadn't tried. So not only what else to do, uh, with tears come out of my eyes and streaming down my cheeks, I begged my God to please, please, please give me love and compassion for Paula Cooper and her family and do that on behalf of Nana. And I prayed it in Jesus' name. It was just a short prayer. But I began to think, well, I could write this girl a letter. I could tell her about Nana. I could sh share with her Nana's faith. I could share with her some of the Bible verses that I figured Nana would want me to tell her. And I realized that my prayer of love and compassion had been answered because I knew I no longer want her to die. And I wanted to do whatever I could do to try to help her. And I also learned the most important lesson of my life that night was about the healing power of forgiveness. Because when my heart was touched with compassion, the forgiveness was automatic. And it brought a tremendous healing. But I knew immediately when my heart was touched with compassion and forgiveness took place, that from that moment on, whenever I think about now and again, I wouldn't think about how she died, but I would think about how she lived, what she stood for, what she believed in, the beautiful, wonderful person she was. And uh, I knew God had done something terrific in my heart. I, I call it a miracle. Bill's prayer was on November 2nd. On November 3rd, he reached out to Paula's trial attorney. Bill wrote a letter to Paula telling her how he had forgiven her and asking if it might be possible for him to visit both her and her grandfather. A short time later, Bill did just that. He visited Paula's grandfather, brought him a fruit basket, and sat at his table looking at childhood pictures of Paula. Bill had come a very long way in a very short time. He attempted to visit Paula at the prison where she was held, but was denied visitation. Bill and Paula exchanged letters for years, until one day, Bill's involvement in a British documentary allowed him to meet Paula in person, five years after she had been removed from death row. And a lot of people always ask me what, what their first visit was like. Um, on a documentary, you know, they'd ask, well, you know, we understand you'd like to visit with Bill, and and she said, yeah, and they asked her why. And she said, well, I'd like to look him in the eyes and know that he's forgiven me. And so when I went to the prison, I knew you could give a hug when you go in and a hug when you go out. So I went in, I gave her a hug, I stepped back, and I looked her in the eyes, and I told her that I loved her and that I had forgiven her. And then we, over those eight years, we, you know, the writing, we had friends in common, so we kind of talked about that. I never, ever did ask her why she had committed that crime, because I don't believe she ever came up with the reason she doesn't know why, why it happened. What I tell people is what stood out in my mind the most was a three-hour drive home. Uh, because as I was driving home, the word wonderful, wonderful, wonderful kept crossing my mind. Because I had just met with this person who had done such a terrible thing to my grandmother, such a terrible thing to our family, and yet I didn't have the hate and the anger and the desire for revenge that it would have been very easy to have had. But I had a kind of love for her that I believe God wants us to have for all of his creation. And to me, that was wonderful.
Bill went on to develop a close relationship with Paula, offering his friendship and love to her during her years in prison. He worked with many others as well, including Pope John Paul II, to see Paula's sentence of death reduced. He was filled with joy when she was eventually released on June 17, 2013. Bill continued to support Paula even outside of prison, until tragically, after escaping the penalty of death and gaining her freedom, Paula ended her own life on May 26th of this year. You know, when she got out of prison, half of her wanted to hide and disappear, uh, you know, from everybody and not, you know, not be known as the Paula Cooper case. And and, and, and that never happened. And, um, and I think that even though she learned about a lot about forgiveness and was able to forgive a lot of people in her life that had let her down, I think that she was never able to forgive herself for the terrible thing that had happened when she was 15 years old. Bill now shares his experience of forgiveness through the Journey of Hope, an organization led by the family members of murder victims, which conducts public education speaking tours and addresses alternatives to the death penalty. He believes that forgiveness is more powerful than revenge can ever be. Uh, Forgiveness is a cornerstone of all the major religions in the world. Uh, And yet, uh, you know, well, yeah, I believe in forgiveness, but not for that. Oh, yeah, I believe in forgiveness. Oh, but not for that. Uh, But uh, you know, forgiveness means no matter what happens, you're supposed to forgive. It doesn't mean you condone it. And I often tell people, it was one thing I told my dad, it really resonated with him, probably more than I ever said to him. But I, I said, we're supposed to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, murder. And I hate it with a passion. I've seen so many lives taken and, and families destroyed. Um, I hate the sin of murder. But we're not supposed to hate the person that commits the murder. Revenge is never the answer. It's never, ever the answer. You can learn more about Bill and the Journey of Hope by visiting journeyofhope.org. Death will come to everybody. Death will come to everybody in its time. In its time. In its time. I'd like to thank all of the guests on today's show. Ray Crone, Jane Davis, Frank Thompson, Mark Hyden, and Bill Pelkey. Special thanks goes out to Stacy Rector with Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty and Abraham Bonowitz, without whom this episode would not have been possible. Remember, you can visit themundanerevolution.com to listen to extended interviews with all five of our guests from today's show. I want to hear